you ever read the, the Bible and you come across a verse and you like catch the feels and you're like, ooh, that was good. Like uh, one of my favorite verses, Galatians 2.20, which says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, right? But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who, what, loved me and gave himself for me. Like, isn't that good? That's a good verse. I love that. I love that verse. Or uh, another one I really, really like, and uh, uh, Michelle, during one of our communities, we talked about this, with Proverbs 16.9, a person's heart plans his ways, but what? The Lord determines his steps. Or I like the KGV, because I, I learned a lot of my memory verses in the old. The Lord orders his steps. So that's, that's a really good one. And then there are scriptures like uh, like this one that caused me to be confused when people say that the Bible is boring. You ever met people like, oh, the Bible is boring. Like, I don't like the Bible. It's like so boring. I don't get it. Well, here's Exodus 32, 24. It says this. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. Now, if you don't know the story, <laughs> this is the story of the Old Testament. And Moses goes up to the mountain, speaks to God, right? Gets the Ten Commandments. He comes down and speaks to his, he comes down the mountain. He leaves his brother Aaron in charge. Like, Aaron's in charge. And while he's up there, the people are like, we need a God. So let's make one. And then so they take all their gold and they throw it in this fire and they make a golden calf. They make a golden calf. But when Moses comes down, Moses is like so mad. He takes like the literal... I mean, first of all, like, you could tell he's mad. He takes the written by the hand of God commandments, because we learn later that the actual next ten commandments, like, he, he chiseled them himself. But, like, he took the hand of God commandments and he said, ah, and he threw them down, right? And then he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then what, Aaron is like, well, I, I, what, we, I don't know, we just collected some gold. And then, like, we just happened to throw it in the fire and, like, poof, out came this golden calf. I don't know, Moses, don't be mad at me. Right, right. And that's, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's kind of crazy. And, and, uh, and actually, if you, if you read later on, lead, read later on uh, Moses takes this golden calf and he burns it up, right? He burns it up and he grounds it into powder and then he mixes it in water and then he makes the Israelites basically drink golden calf Kool-Aid, right? So like, this is interesting stuff. Like I, I read stuff like this in the Bible. I'm like, that's kind of messed up, but I think it's funny. Like, you do you, Moses. You do you. But here's the thing. For as many parts of the Bible uh, people love to read or get a kick out of, or, you know, you got those verses that people love to put up on their wall, right, that they get from Etsy or, uh, like, what's the, Hobby Lobby, right? Hobby Lobby has all the scripture verse art, right? We got a few in our house. The reality is that there are just as many passages of Scripture that leave the casual reader of the Bible scratching their head. And whether it's because of a lack of cultural understanding or maybe it's incompetency regarding the nuances of ancient literature, or maybe it's because of our modern social and maybe political worldviews that cause us to react to parts of the Scripture with the feelings like of awkwardness, like we read it and like, oh, I don't know, that's kind of weird. And, or as the kids would say, cringy, right? No, cringy, like this. Like, okay, right? This series is about looking at some of those problematic passages and helping us understand what in the world do we make of these passages of Scripture. And at the end of the day, my hope is that you will walk away with the confidence to believe what the Scripture says about itself, which is this in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture... All scripture 
is inspired by God and is useful. Like it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, but it also teaches us to do what is right. I don't know about you, but that sounds like good news to me. So we're going to dive into Psalm 137 today. 137. And here's the thing. When you read Psalm 137, how many of you have ever read Psalm 137? Like, okay, we got one, two. Okay, so, okay, three. All right. Somebody like, I've read through the Psalms, but I don't really remember. Okay, good. This is good. We're all going to take a journey here today. When you first read Psalm 137, there really is nothing like problematic about it. If you're familiar with just a little bit of the history of the Israelites, if you're a Bible nerd, this psalm was set around the time between the return of the exiles to Jerusalem and, uh, well, to put it in correct chronicle order, order uh, they were, some of you know, like the, the Israelites, they disobeyed God, right? And then they got put in captivity in Babylon, and that was about like 70 years. And then after that, they were allowed to go back. Zerubbabel helped them. I think it's a really funny name, Zerubbabel. He helped them build, rebuild the walls of the temple. And so this is kind of in between that you know, end of the seven years and, and the walls of the temple haven't been built yet. So this is just, just so you can know, like just get a little, little bit, a little bit of, of background behind that. Now, what do the lyrics of a, uh, you know, maybe top 40 Jewish songwriter during this period look like? Well, it probably looks like what you would expect. And here's what, here's what we, here's what a songwriter wrote during this period. They're just coming out of captivity in Babylon. They're starting They just came into Jerusalem. The the walls are down. The temple is down. Everything's in shambles. Okay? So this is what he writes. Psalms 137, verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our... And Zion, by the way, is, is another way that they refer to Jerusalem. There we hung up our lyres. It's an um, Old Testament electric guitar, okay? If you don't know what that is. On the poplar trees. For our captors there asked us for songs and our tormentors for rejoicing. <laughs> Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? In other words... Um, Kind of at the beginning of this psalm, it sounds kind of like a middle between, I don't know, like something Taylor Swift would write when she's like, you know, it's me, hi, I'm the problem. Like this is like this, like they're admitting like, hey, we got ourselves in this situation in in Babylon. But then, you know, it talks about like all the tormentors rejoicing and singing the song of Zion. It sounds like something from like an early 2000s emo band, you know, like Dashboard Confessional or My Chemical Romance. Some of you know, right? This is going to get really emo, this, 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 this psalm. Now, if none of that makes sense to you, what I was really trying to say is that what we read here is something that I think we would all agree makes sense to have been written by anyone who was ripped from their homes and then forced to live in a land that was not their own, and then held captive by a people who had no respect for them. The kind of respect that basically said, look, we got you, we own you. Now, I heard you guys used to sing some songs about your great homeland, Zion. What are those songs again? Come again, sing them out. (laughs) How great is your Zion, right? So they're kind of, you're just messing with them, right? They're just messing with them. 
And if, if you're wondering what Songs of Zion are, uh, you know, one Bible scholar tells us that Songs of Zion are just songs that celebrate the majesty and protection of the Lord over his people. Um, and, and in fact, uh, one of those Songs of Zion is, is made a really popular worship song. You ever heard that song like, better is one day in your courts? Ever, yeah, that song is, how lovely is your... So that's a, that's a psalm that was actually a song of Zion. So you remember some of those. Now, here's a question. Have any of you ever been there? Have any of you ever been to that place? Have any of you ever suffered a time when the memories of your past tormented the realities of your present? I mean, you may not have been asked to sing songs of Zion to your pain or suffering, but has the evil one, like the tormentors of the psalmist, tempted you to doubt the reality of God's goodness that has been proven in previous generations by by throwing in your face the seemingly absent presence of God in the present. Maybe for you, life has never been hard. Maybe. Maybe you've never experienced pain or suffering. Maybe you've never been tempted to abandon your faith or cease singing songs of the faithfulness of God. You've always had that, you've never struggled, maybe you've never felt the pain of wanting to believe in God, but at the same time, harboring what seems to be an overwhelming evidence in your current reality that God's existence seems more like a fairy tale than a reality. Maybe that's not you, that's not you, that's not your story. But if life for you has been hard, like if, if you've gone through some hard seasons of your life, if for you, life has, you know, if, 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 if you've ever found yourself forced with what is the seemingly impossible task of learning to embrace faith in uncharted waters, if you've ever faced the challenge of having faith when having faith seems like the farthest option for your reality, then this psalm can be of good hope and good news to you, to you. So the question is then, well, then how, how is this psalm good news? Well, first, it, it does this. It offers us a foundation to build faith in God when God feels absent or unwilling to be present. Okay, so it, it builds a foundation, which leads to the next question. Like, well, what is this foundation? Like, oh, it's great. What's the foundation? Well, the foundation is the testimony of those who've gone before us. Okay, listen. I know that there are some people who, who will say, like, it doesn't make sense. Like, this idea of having faith in Jesus, like, faith in something that I've never experienced, but you're telling me in order to experience it, I have to trust your experience. That's, that seems illogical. But here's the thing I want to, here's, here's the thing I'd love to present to you. And maybe this isn't for you, but maybe you have a friend who's made this argument. And this is the, this is, this is the, a real logical argument. Anyone who practices faith in anything practices faith by believing something someone else said. Now, you may not call it faith, but we all trust other people's testimony to help us overcome uncertainty. Right? Parents. Parents. If you've ever been a parent, you listen to other people's testimony of what it means to be a parent. And then you build your parenting philosophies based on what you've learned from other people who went before you. Now, some of it you're like, mm, I don't know, that sounds kind of like 
boomer-ish, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, and then some are like, oh, that's really, really good. That's a really, really good thing. I've been catching up with some friends here visiting from out of town, and I was talking about, Matt was telling me about some like the cool things he does with his parents, with his kids, and I'm like, oh, man, I should have done that with my kids. Oh, well, too late. Um, but like, no one ever parents without, listen, you, don't, you may not call it faith, but we all put some amount of trust in what other people say, and then we actually do it. Like, we actually, we make decisions in life. Uh, athletes, right? Athletes listen to the testimony of coaches. Now, you might not call that, but that's what they're doing when a coach says, you should do it this way. And they're trying to tell you to do something you've never done before. You're like, I don't know. That doesn't feel natural to me. And the coach is like, trust me, you look awkward when you dribble a ball like that. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. You got to do it like this. Or, you know, another athlete tells you like, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And so what do we do as athletes? You know, it, it feels awkward, right, to, to embrace a new technique or skill, even though it doesn't seem to make sense or feels weird, but it works, right? right? For instance, like, have you ever seen this movie? Ever seen this movie, right? What does sand the floor, paint the fence, have to do with karate, Mr. Miyagi? Oh, I'll show you, right? And so, so sometimes you listen to things that you're not familiar with. You listen to the testimony of others to have the kind of faith you need to live the kind of life you need. And what's true in our everyday life is also true in our spiritual life. Learning to engage in a maturing faith in the face of adversity is best done by learning to lean on the testimony of those who have done so before us. Now, this, of course, doesn't preclude the propensity of certain personalities to want to learn things the hard way you know those kind of people, right? No matter how much advice you give to them, they're, they're just just—they're always going to want to learn the hard way. So there's going to be those people. There's going to be those people. The point is that the wise thing to do, like, and don't you want to live wise? And if you want to live wise, listen, the wise thing to do is to the, allow the experience of others to guide you in times of uncertainty or encourage you in revisited times of calamity that God truly is who he says he is. When you are faced with the temptation of believing that God is distant and that he's unloving and he's not involved, it's at those times you lean on the people who have gone before you, who in their times when they felt like God was distant, unloving, unkind, have a testimony how God proved that actually he was. And so what did the people of faith do in times of trouble? Even if it resulted from the rebellion and their disobedience, like this trouble that they were in, was they were responsible for it. Like they were in Babylon, not because like, oh no, these Babylonians, they're just bad people. And they, we were doing so good. And then they took over us. They took advantage of us. No, like God said, step up or I'm going to let these people take over you. And what do they do? They're like, no, no, we want our own king. We don't want... Jesus, we don't want the Lord to be our king. We want, you know, earthly kings. And they just, they kept on going their own way. And so God said, right, fine, fine. Here, you could have the life you want. And he lets them have the life that they want. And they paid the consequence for that. But even though this happened, how did they find themselves? How did they find hope in this reality? What they did is what you and I should do is, this they remembered. They remember they remembered. Verse five in Psalm 137 says this If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. 
May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Now, regarding this passage of scripture, one, one Bible scholar says this, and I think it, it should help kind of understand. It's a very poetic, and so this, I think, is really helpful to understand. He says this, loyalty lies in remembering, as in, you know, alluded to in verse 1, instead of forgetting, the godly could not forget Jerusalem and everything it stood for, covenant, temple, the presence, and the kingship of God, atonement, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So this is what, in this psalm, this is, this is the depth of what is being declared. Like, how could I forget? How could I forget the goodness of God, the atonement of God, the forgiveness of God, the reconciliation he offers when I live my life that in incongruent ways to your standards? How could I forget the temple where the presence of God literally was? How could I forget the place where his people would gather and voices would proclaim the majesty of God our King and we would listen to the Torah, the word of God being spoken over us, guiding us into all truth. How could I forget that? It's so good. I think it's important to note that in this psalm, um, as I said before, it was written how many years after captivity in Babylon? Do you remember? We'll test how many years? 70, right? So 70 years. Okay. So sometimes you have to step back from the scripture and you just got to go, okay, what's going on here? This psalm was written 70 years since the last Israelite had been in the presence within the temple within Jerusalem. Okay. Sociologists tell us that a generation lasts about how many years? Anybody know? Extra credit? 30 years, 30 years. About 30 years. A generation. That's about 30 years. Okay? So we have here about two generations that have passed. Now, where am I going with this? It's not... Listen, while it's not impossible that there were people still living who knew of life in Jerusalem, it's possible. You know, we all know that one person that, you know, in our lives just... Man, great-grandma will just not die. It's like, she is 104 years old. She is... Yeah. Right? We all know those kind of people. It's possible. But the more accurate reality is that most Israelites only knew of the splendor of Jerusalem and all that it stood for, not out of personal experience, but guess from what? From the testimony of others who had been there. And this is the life of faith. This is the life of faith. We all lean on the testimony of others before us to guide our journey into maturing faith, especially when life finds us in situations where God seems distant or God seems absent. Like, for instance, I believe Jesus is the Son of God through whom is the only way to be forgiven of my sins, reconciled to God, and given a purpose for living that extends past the realities of my life on earth. And why do I believe this? I believe this because of the testimony of a guy named Matthew. I believe this because of the testimony of a guy named Mark. A guy named Luke, who did all of his homework to listen to all the eyewitnesses. And, 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 and I listened to the testimony of a guy named John, who, and it's kind of questionable if he really was the one Jesus loved, because he wrote that in the book that he wrote. But nonetheless, history tells us that John was really close to Jesus. 
Jesus is a character that even history, historians outside of the biblical narrative affirm lived, walked the earth. I believe in Jesus because of the testimony of all the early disciples of Jesus, whose existence is not only verified by scripture, but by writings of other ancient historians who confirm the existence of the people who believed in Jesus and experienced, these people experienced persecution, even death, for believing that Jesus is the only way to God, the truth, and the life. And so because they did, I do. Like, how do I believe in Jesus? Have you ever met him? Well, I mean, we could talk about like, the etymology of that phrase, like, have you ever met Jesus? Like, yeah, I, I feel like I have met Jesus, my Lord. But like, have I like, touched his side, felt his hands? Well, no. But I know a guy that did. I read his testimony. It's verifiable. It's something I can trust in. And so even though I've never gotten to see the face of God, I could know that God is real. I can know that Jesus is real because of the testimony of those before me. And in my own life, when I felt that God is distant and he's absent, and I had no way to verify that God shows up in times where he's absent and where he's distant, I can trust in the testimony of others who can say, yeah, there was a time in my life when God felt distant, when he felt far. But guess what? He showed. He showed. Just... I don't know, just share hands. Anyone know what that's like? To feel that God is distant, but he showed up. He showed up in your life. Yeah, okay? Look, you don't believe the Bible, and maybe this seems too far-fetched to believe a psalm. We have people here right now who can tell you of their testimony, how God showed up. God can be trusted. But this doesn't get to what makes the passage of Scripture so difficult. I got... Ten minutes left, and I'm going to tell you what makes this passage of scripture, scripture, scripture so difficult. What makes this so difficult is reading what the writer of this psalm says next. And here's, here's the next, in verse 7 and 9. It says this, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it! Destroy it! Down to its foundations! Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who pays you back. What you have done to us, Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Now, this is, this is where it gets difficult because, um, if some of you are Bible nerds, you might know this is referred to, this Psalm 137 is known as an imprecatory Psalm. Okay? Uh, for those of you who just need the plain English version of what that means, I like to call Psalms like these angry prayers. They're just angry prayers. Angry prayers. They're angry because they're often psalms that contains prayer to God, asking him to bring judgment on the enemies. Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who pays you back. Happy is the one that takes your little ones and kills them. Like, oh, wait a minute. You just kind of crossed that line. And, and that's what makes this passage of scripture so problematic in light of what we learn from Jesus. Doesn't this seem so wrong? Like, doesn't this seem, like, so wrong? Like, for instance, when you take everything Jesus teaches about loving our enemies in Matthew chapter 5, and how he instructs us to, to his disciples to be the kind of people who put away the sword in Matthew chapter 26, instead of, and instead, instead of 
holding on to the sword to defend the faith. Instead, share the gospel in love as a weapon against the evil one and what he wants to do in the world. Share the gospel in love with those who persecute you. Praying prayers where you would hope bad things would happen to your enemies can't possibly be something that seems right. And that definitely isn't something that should be part of the rhythms of a fully submitted follower of Jesus, right? I mean, there's no way praying like this should be something any person who calls himself a Christian should do, right? And I've wrestled with the different ways to communicate how we can best understand these kinds of psalms in, in helping us become more mature followers of Jesus. That's that's the goal. Like when we read the scripture, I want you to feel like you're becoming more mature in your faith in Jesus. Believing that it's true that all scripture is God and useful. And so the best way I I think this could be understood comes actually from an excerpt of a book uh, I've read recently, which actually I really recommend. It's a really good read. It's actually, uh, it's called Reading While Black. It's a uh, uh, his name is Esau Macaulay, and he's a uh, American biblical scholar. He's an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. Um, he's a, he's a black guy, and um, in this book, just a little synopsis. He he actually uses this Psalm 137 to interpret the experience of many black individuals who have endured torture, discrimination, and violence. And he writes this. He says this. Psalm 137 is not merely a shout of defiance. It is a prayer addressed to God. Traumatized communities must be able to tell God the truth about what they feel. We must trust that God can handle those emotions. God can listen to our cries for vengeance. And as the one sovereign over history, he gets to choose how to respond. Psalm 137 does not take power from God and give it to us. It is an affirmation of his power in the midst of deep pain and estrangement. What he argues later in the book is actually even more powerful. He goes on to state that uh, something that even the most conservative of theologians who have written commentaries on this passage of scripture over the years agree upon it. And, and, and what is that? that? It's this, that these Psalms are never the end point for the follower of Christ. Like these Psalms don't point to like, okay, this should be my life. I should be the kind of person that's like, and Lord dash my enemy's children into the rocks. Like that's not, that's not like, that's not the end point of our lives. What they do serve to do is act as a starting point to understand our pain and God's love. Cause sometimes people, when they think about what it means to be a Christian, like this kind of mentality, the kind of like, where you harbor vengeance, like for some reason they like, I, I come to faith in Jesus, I yes to Jesus, and all of a sudden I'm like, happy! I just love everybody, and even my enemies, automatically, and I don't even know why. I just love them all, but that's not like the reality. Like, you come to faith in Jesus, he does something amazing in you, but you still deal with pain and suffering. And what Esau Macaulay talks about in this book, he says, Psalms like these act as a starting point to help us understand our pain and God's love. In fact, the advice Esau Macaulay gives to his intended audience, which is black American Christians who are trying to be more like Jesus, but also at the same time harboring incredible amounts of hurt and pain 
at the hands of injustice, who believe, right? So this, here's what he says to them. And, and maybe it might speak something to you. Here's what he says to his fellow black Americans. He goes, it is only by looking at our enemies through the lens of the cross that we can begin to imagine the forgiveness necessary for community. What do black Christians do with the rage that we rightly feel? We send it to the cross of Christ. Without the resurrection, the forgiveness embedded in the cross is the wistful dream of a pious fool. But I am convinced that the Messiah has defeated death. I can forgive my enemies because I believe the resurrection happened. I'm convinced the God who had the power to judge me did not. That's good. Instead, he invited me into communion with his son. And through that union with the Messiah, I discovered the resources to love that I did not possess before. When anger is victorious in my own heart, it never defeats God. Okay. The imprecatory Psalms are a means of a starting process of healing. And the cross breaks the cycle of hatred and violence. It's natural, it's reasonable to believe that even someone who is embracing a faith in Christ may pray for the judgment of their enemies at the start of their journey. But in light of the cross, in light of the gospel, we understand, as Tim Keller once so famously put into his words, own words, he said this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. In light of that gospel, in light of this, those of us who have chosen to increasingly submit all of life to Jesus as Master and Savior are called, are called to learn what it means to pray for our enemies, to pray for their forgiveness, and pray not for the punishment that is due them, but that ultimately they would embrace the kind of repentance and humility that is only experienced when the realities of the grace of God has touched their heart, mind, and soul. That's what we pray for. And we pray like this because it is also the prayer for our own lives, isn't it? That we would be the kind of people who would experience the love and the grace of God in such real, tangible ways that we know that we are both flawed and more sinful than we ever dare hope, but at the same time loved and sent by God because of Jesus than we ever can imagine. Like, isn't that the prayer of your own heart, of your own life? And maybe you're in a season of life where it feels like you don't have the strength to have this kind of posture and grace. Yes, God is good. I believe he's with me. Maybe life is hard. Like God literally doesn't feel with you and people have been dumb. <laughs> Just, they've been dumb all around you and, and you're tired. You're just tired of people and you have no faith. And the only thing that seems to come out of your mouth is, God, make them pay for their pain. 
And then you, you struggle because like, oh no, I sound like a, I sound like the Psalm 137. I don't know. I don't want to be like that. I know Jesus says, I'm supposed to love my enemies. Well, what do I do with this? Just remember, this is you, that God's grace is still extended to you. Or as we have learned, when anger is victorious in my own heart, it never defeats 